Please bless these tithes, these offerings, and that they will be for your honor and your glory to build your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Um, just as a reminder, three and four-year-olds, they are dismissed to junior worship if uh, they would like to attend that. And as you are seated, take your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and turn to Genesis chapter 26. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles in the foyer. Please pick one up. If you come in and you realize you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one on the way in. Oh, um, we'll just follow along inside of God's Word here. And as we come to Genesis 26, we're coming to the close of my current sermon series. So I wanted to work through the life of Abraham and Isaac. And so chapter 12 uh, through 26 are that section. And so I'm going to stop on this part and uh, we'll take a break for a while. And we're going to look at some other things. Namely, next week, we start a series on the fruit of the spirit out of, out of Galatians chapter 5. Um, so... That's kind of what's ahead, but this is a bit of a, a, a bookend in the life of, of uh, Abraham and his, and his son Isaac. So again, we're Genesis chapter 26, and we'll read the whole chapter here. This is God's word. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down. To Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah's wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. 
Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called his name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name uh, Rehoboth. I said it earlier, better. Uh, Saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. For there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of the army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? seeing that you hate me, and you have sent me away from you. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we had not touched you, and have done you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, as Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it uh, Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you've not left us to live our Christian life alone, but Father, you give us pictures, you give us images, you give us uh, examples of what a Christian life would look like. Father, even back way in the Old Testament. And so, Father, as we, as we look at this story, which can seem so long ago, we pray that you'd help us to see how a life of faith and, and certain things in here are relevant to every stage of life that we go through, every era of life on this planet. And Father, recognizing that, help us to be faithful to you. Help us be faithful to please you, to live in a way that glorifies and honors you, that walks in accordance with your law. Father, that our hearts may be uplifted and you may be glorified. So we ask you to help us by sending your spirit to do that work in us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk about the the normal Christian life or the ordinary Christian life. Life, And I think this is so important to talk about just to emphasize um, that the meaning of our life doesn't come from the things that we accomplish. Because when we believe those things, it can be a very exhausting way to live. Now, it's, it's our nature to think that the things we accomplish in our lives or the things we accomplish in our days, that those somehow provide some sort of justification for our lives. Uh, many uh, think that the things that they do are the things that uh, give them value. And so whether that's a significant work project or whether it's something is uh, like getting the laundry done or whether it's getting our kids into college or just passing the next test, uh, we feel an enormous um, amount of pressure to accomplish things. You know, I, I need a good grade, we think. I need to get dinner cooked on time. If the kids are going to go to church, they need to wear matching socks. Um, I need that promotion. I need to do something important to the church. 
Now, it's not that the things that we do or the goals we set aren't important. It's just that often we attach too much pressure to them. And that shows up in the way that we feel, in the way that we act, in the way that we respond to problems. That's because when we look at these things, we often ask the question, you know, will I measure up in the future? And what does this thing have to say about me measuring up to some um, standards out there? Will I be all right? And that creates a lot of stress. Maybe you feel it now. Maybe you felt it this morning. You know, to come to worship, it's a time to take a deep breath. It's time to settle hearts and minds before the Lord and to say, you know what, God, what really matters right now? Now, don't get me wrong in any of this because, you know, I, I love ambition. I think there is a Christian ambition which we can have. You know, I'm the kind of person who wants to set one-year goals, three-year goals, five-year goals uh, for my life. I, I like to set goals for my spiritual life, for the church, for my family, for my finances. You know, probably I can pick all kinds of places I set goals for um, inside of my life, physical goals. You know, people have told me that I exhaust them with my goals. And... And my role model for goals are people who, who set them and accomplish them. The Apostle Paul, so I read through the scriptures. Pastor Doug, you know, for the goals that he's had. And even like secular people like Elon Musk, you know, he wants to get to, the, to colonize Mars. And, you know, it's ambitious. That's impressive. Um, but still, in all this, my realization is this, is that accomplishing my goals does not make me a better person or it doesn't make me more acceptable to God. To believe that accomplishing my goals does any of this is the denial of the gospel and the power of Christ in my life. It's also a good reminder to me that most of the people who've had the greatest impact on me, you know, really led relatively quiet, um, silent lives, but they loved me in ways that made a deep and lasting impact on my life. A picture of how an ordinary life is an impactful life. Now, it's not that setting goals is bad again. But it's just that God has greater plans for you than you would just do a bunch of stuff for him. He wants you to know him, to grow in him, to thrive in him. Um, He's ultimately concerned for your good, and he's not just trying to get something from you. And sometimes we can feel like that. We feel like uh, it's not just that God is going to judge us on what we do, but whether we worked hard enough while we were doing those things we were supposed to be doing. We might feel like one woman... I read online said, she said, there is a martyrdom that the world demands of us women to work ourselves until we're spent. And then she learned that's not the voice of God, that's the voice of something else. Now, it all came to bear as I was thinking about Isaac and the passage we have before us today. And that's because Isaac's life seems pretty ordinary, at least compared with his father, and compared with his son. So for all the excitement that builds up about his birth and his place inside of his nation's history and being part of Israel's three great patriarchs, he really has an uneventful life. There's some things that I notice as I can study through a whole book of the Bible. One of the things I noticed was that Isaac just really has one chapter of the Bible which is committed to him. You know, think about that for a minute. I mean, Abraham starts in chapter 11, and he gets to focus really all the way through uh, at least chapter 23, if not beyond. 
Jacob, he's going to start in, in uh, 27, and he's going to take up the focus all the way through 50. But, you know, whenever it talks about Isaac's life, it kind of talks about him in light of his father. Well, he's Abraham's kid. Or it talks about in light of Jacob. Well, he's Jacob's father. But here you have this one chapter, which is given um, over to him. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking how much he reminds me of my own generation. Now, I am of the Generation X generation. So the Pew Research Center says that that is people who were born between 1965 and 1980. So there are any other Gen Xers in this room? If you're a Gen Xer, raise your hand. Let me see you. All right. All right. So my, my generation is here. Well, so we're this skipped over generation. Sometimes it feels like that. And, and, and the reason, it, well, like me and my wife, we did a search on the generations, and guess what? It didn't even show up in a list of the generation lists that we're on. This Google search didn't even give our generations part of it. Um, and why? That's because we're kind of like, people think of us as this bridge generation, you know, between baby boomers and millennials. So are, are there any baby boomers here? Baby boomers are 19, uh, before 1965. There's a silent generation too. But any baby boomers here? Uh, are there? Okay, so we got a bunch of baby boomers, right? Now, y'all are 21% of the population in the United States. So, all right, any millennials here? Millennials are 1981 to 1996. Any millennials that are here? Okay, so now, of millennials, y'all are 23% of the population, right? So those are the two biggest ones. Um, any Gen uh, Zers here? Any Gen Zers? That's, what is Gen Z? Gen Z is um, 1996 to 2012. So Gen Zers, all right. All right, I, I, somebody said, why didn't you talk about the alpha generation? That's everybody born after 2012. Anyone of those here, the little ones? I mean, some people aren't raising their hand, but they're, because they're not paying attention. Come on. All right. So anyways... But the Gen Xers, right, we are 18%, right? So we're between this 21%, 23%. They're big, and you have this littler group. And that's why they're often thought of this transition uh, gener generation. And so if you think about, you know, my connection with Isaac was, you know, Abraham, again, he has all these chapters. He was the one who's given this great promise. And then Jacob, I mean, the whole nation of Israel is going to be named after Jacob in a few chapters. And then here you have Isaac, and he's given one chapter. Um, inside of the Bible. But it's a time of transition. It's a time of transition as God's covenant promises are making their way through the generations. And what it's showing is God's faithfulness to that promise. In fact, as I was reading it, verse 29 jumped out to me. Verse 29, where Abimelech says to him, you, now, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Right? Abraham's gone. Who is it now? As Benelux says to Isaac, you are now that one. Now, here's the thing that I want to connect with us here, is that we might think there's nothing interesting about our lives, nothing significant, nothing that will really change the world, and we might wonder about our own purpose and significance in this. You know, what is our significance compared to those who truly do the great things, our parents who seem to do so much? And so as I was thinking about this chapter I was thinking about it, how it shows a great picture of the normal Christian life, of that quiet faithfulness to God, and, and, and the reminder of the bigger story, the bigger story of God's faithfulness. And that is really where the power of the gospel is, isn't it? It's not in our actions, it's not in what we do, but it's in God's faithfulness to his people. And so if you're overwhelmed, if you think you don't do enough, 
if you think that you aren't good enough, if you think God or, or maybe the church is just trying to suck you dry, or if you think the devil is trying to suck you dry, or you find yourself in survival mode or just low on, on ambition, I, I just hope you find some refreshment in the gospel as we look through this today. We have to get back to that gospel is the main message that God's love and acceptance of you comes by his grace alone, through faith alone, and because of Christ alone. It's not based on your accomplishments. What matters is in receiving these promises of God, dwelling on his power, it's more than trying to make them extraordinary by our works. What makes Isaac extraordinary and is one who stands out is the grace of God, the grace of God in his life. And it's the same with us. The grace of God is the most extraordinary thing inside of our lives. So I want to look at, um, just with that in mind, I want to look at this ordinary Christian life through the um, story of Isaac here. Uh, The first thing we want to see is that the ordinary Christian life looks like God holding onto our haltering hearts in his promises. He holds our haltering hearts in his promises. So there's two events in verses 1 through 11 where Isaac's life could have uh, gone off the rails. Um, And God preserves him in both of them. Uh, Like times where Isaac might have thought that he should distance himself from God's promises for self-preservation. And and God brings him back. And so the first one is that God um, is this this famine in the land, right? There's a famine. He's tempted to leave this this promised land that God has promised to him um, by, by his covenant. And God instructs him, verses one through five, not to leave, Now, verse 1, if you look at verse 1, it alludes back to a previous famine. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, talks about uh, a famine that Abraham experienced. And in that one, he actually went down to Egypt without any command that came from God. And really, in a humanly speaking way, God had promised this this land, the land of, 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 of Canaan. He promised it would be yours. And what does Abraham do? But he just leaves it. And God, through a number of events, orchestrates to get Abraham back into that land. But what do you see here in Genesis 26? God doesn't even allow him to leave. You know, as he's moving down that direction, God says, you know what, this land is the thing I'm promising to you, to your children. You don't even leave this promise. Stay put in where that I put you. It's important for him to stay within the promise of God and not let his mind, not let his body wander away from that promises, from, from, the, from those promises that are there. And that's a really important reminder for us to keep our hearts, to keep our minds, and even our bodies devoted to God and to his promises. You know, there's, there's the hymn that we love to sing, which says this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Right, and then what's the prayer? Knowing how prone our hearts are to wander away from God. This is the prayer. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You know, isn't that the truth of how we ought to pray? It's like, God, I know my heart is prone to go away. Just, just deliver me from evil. Lead me in the truth. Help me to walk in you. You know, we need God's word. It's God's word that kept Isaac inside of God's grace. And, and his word is grace to us. In the same way, we, that's why we need God's word, his commandments, his promises. Keep us rooted where we are and, and doing the things that he has called us to do. And we need his sovereign hand to keep us near Christ. And so maybe you're tempted to wander into places you shouldn't go. You, you have the word of God. 
And those, that's given to you to keep you in that land of promise. Will you believe them? Will you obey God's commands? Will you trust Christ to establish your life here and now? For that thing just has so much grip on your life, will you be honest with other people about it that you can come out from under that grip? Will you trust Christ to establish your hope in heaven? Will you listen to his word and stay in the truth of the word? And if you don't know it well enough, dig into it. You know, find somebody to walk you through those promises, to work you through the challenges that you face. The second account of where he's attempted to go astray starts in verse 6. And if it sounds familiar, it's because his, we have at least two accounts of his father doing the same thing. It's really a, a point of like father, like son. And what we see in, um, sorry, in verse 6, is that um, Isaac uh, attempts to pass his wife Rebecca off as his sister instead of his wife because he's afraid that if people think he's his wife that they'll be hurt and killed, um, that somebody would take her from him. And, you know, in the account, the king just happens to be looking out the window and notices that they are, that they're, um, that they're together and notices there's some love that's between them. And he discovers it and he fears God in that. And he tells, he corrects Isaac, says, what are you doing? Uh, you don't do this. And then he instructs the rest of his kingdom to let, let him be. Right, this is something that Abraham did as a matter of self-preservation probably a number of times throughout his uh, wandering through the land of Canaan. Uh, and, and both times um, that we have record of it um, from Genesis 12 to 20 is that God interrupts it before Sarah's taken into another home. And here he does it again, right? Um, it's, and it's important that he does so because God's promised line would come through Sarah. God provided Rebecca. Rebecca was this God-fearing woman. They already had two children together. And, you know, God's plan and purposes was through this family that was established. He wasn't going to let this family break up. He wasn't going to let this family get torn asunder. And so God in his providence has the king look out a window and to see they're together. Now, if you read the text there, you see that they were, uh, he, he saw them laughing together. You know, um, Isaac's name is Laughter. It's kind of a picture, somebody says, kind of, the way I was, that's in my head right now at least, it's kind of a flirty, laughy, kind of fun kind of love. I mean, he looked out the window and said, well, there's something that's intimate that's between them. You know, they're having a little bit of fun together. And, and so as I was just thinking about this, you know, it just reminded me the, the, the importance of laughing together as, in, inside of marriage, the importance of, of that laughter, of that intimacy, of that, of that coupling together, you know, which, which is evident that there's something between us. You know, there's a podcast I saw, the importance of laughing together in terms of revitalizing a marriage. And it's something that probably, as I just thought about this as an aside, probably good for us to think about. You know, how are we laughing together? As a couple. Well, anyways, um, God puts an end to that, or Abimelech puts an end to it, but because um, God warns him of this, and there's a protection uh, of them of any negative consequences from uh, taking place. And, and Abimelech gives them freedom to travel in the land without a fear of violence. So what we see here is twice. Uh, Isaac is tempted to move away from God's promises um, he's, there's an imitation of his father, and then twice we see rescue taking place. 
And it is a picture of a normal Christian life where we are tempted to move in and out of God's promises. You know, we ought not to be surprised that we have struggle between uh, two things that are going on inside of our life. In fact, Romans chapter 7 talks about that. If you want to turn to Romans 7, uh, starting in verse 22, it describes that internal conflict that happens inside of a life of faith. Romans 7, 22 describes on the one side, he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right, you see, I mean, for the believer, the one who's followed God, you know, they want to do it. There's something inner that's drawn towards that. That's, that's a result of regeneration in a person's life. But then verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and make me captive to the law of the sin that dwells in my members. So there's another power. There's other forces at work within there, you know, compelling us to go in a different direction. Right? And so there's this tension, there's this conflict that's, that's, that's in there. But the hope in it is not that somehow we beat up and, you know, build up the right one and win through them, but it's that actually that God would move us forward by his grace. That's what you see in verse 24. Verse 24, in fact, the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, he gives up on himself. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? It's not going to come from him. Where is it going to come from? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He recognizes is that God, this is going to be one, it's going to be one by God. It's going to be one by God's power at work within him. And when we come back to Isaac's life, the amazing thing is not his great accomplishments or his story, but it's the grace of God in his life. And the ordinary Christian life is never, look at what I've done, but it's, look at what God has done for me. Look at what God has done in me. Look at what God has done through me. Look at how God has saved me. Even saving me from a long list of bad decisions, he has not treated me as my sins deserve. He gets the glory. And so the Christian life is one where we see how God has forgiven our sins. He's given us a new heart to stay near to him. It might look ordinary, but that is not ordinary. That's the extraordinary gift of God's grace working in our lives. And so we celebrate, so we worship as we come together. All right, so the first thing of the ordinary Christian life, it looks like God holding our haltering hearts in his promises, verses 1 through 11. Secondly, sorry, in verse 12, we see that the ordinary Christian life looks like God preserving us through opposition. Verses 12 through 25, we see this description of trouble that Isaac had with the Philistine people around him. So remember, he was a sojourner. He was a pilgrim. In the land. He did not own his own land. He did not have his own property. He did not have a place he could call his own. And so as he started to prosper, as he did, hundredfold, many flocks, much wealth, the people around him became jealous and they became fearful, right? That his blessings would somehow interfere with their blessings. That he'd take too much land to graze his sheep, but they wouldn't have their land, right? They'd already filled up the, the wells that his father had dug in order to make life difficult for him. There's this passive-aggressive work of kind of kicking him out of the land until finally we see Abimelech, um, the, the king, come to him and say, well, hey, you got to go. No more passive-aggressiveness here. You just got to leave, right? And then he leaves, and he goes one place, starts to build well, but no, they stop him there. He goes another place, starts to build well, stop there, and finally he makes a place where they let him build one. I mean, what a way to say he wasn't welcome. I mean, how many peoples throughout the history of the world have been, you know, threatened 
or uh, been been threatened by others who were afraid of them and just kicked them out, made them feel unwelcome, pushed them off. Here you see Israel from the very beginning just pushed off, made unwelcome, even though they were welcomed earlier. It's a helpful reminder for our Christian life because we're going to face opposition and we have to persevere through it. That's an ordinary part of the Christian life. Jesus promised it. You can look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. If you want to turn there, Matthew 5, starting in verse 10, uh, he said we'd face opposition, even persecution. And he says it's the path of blessing. Look at verse 10. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's interesting to note, Isaac, he was welcomed first, right? But as he began to prosper too much, right, he was pushed out. Our own experiences can be like that. Christians may be loved when we talk about God's love. We talk about spirituality. We talk about joy. But once we talk about repentance and faith, which brings about those things in the life, well, when we talk about obedience to God's command as, as a result and consequence of genuine faith, well, then people's opinion changes, right? But it's the same God. The same God brings the blessing as brings the calling. And that's often when difficulty starts. That's why we don't live by people's opinions, but by the word of God. People love to pick and choose what they want, not necessarily what's true. Well, there might be an acceptance of your faith, at least for a while, but then when your family does something to honor the Lord, or does well in the Lord, experiences blessings, others try to tear that down. And instead of accepting the fact that, that the Christian faith brings real wisdom and real blessing, like people ridicule it and try to tear um, it down together, just tear down. The, the, the Philistines, they could have been blessed and learned to work together with Abraham and his blessing, but instead they drove him out and lost out on that blessing. And what happens inside of our world is that as the world drives out Christian conviction, uh, the world gets worse for it. Like with Washington, D.C., uh, uh, a few years ago, they required all adoption agencies to allow gay couples to adopt, even if it was against religious convictions. You know, just forcing everyone, you have to do this, you have to comply with this. What happened? Well, some Christian agencies had to stop doing business. Less adoptions, less care was done. That, it was a kind of a coercion, which kind of drove this out of business, right? You can't disincentivize good things and think that they will continue. It's a grief when that happens. Things we need to pray about. Persecution, it, it may come passively through being dismissed and marginalized. It may be being passed over for a promotion or a job. It may mean that we cannot work in certain kinds of fields because we can't get in. It may come actively like being fired or fined or imprisoned. Who knows? The world does not have much taste for God's people or for the righteousness of God. But you notice what happens is that even though that he is driven out is that Isaac doesn't give up on finding a place. He, he doesn't leave the land. He doesn't buckle, but he, he keeps pressing on finding that place. And it's at times um, that we face opposition and difficulty that we really see the power of God's grace within a person's life. Either doesn't, uh, Isaac doesn't go to war over this. He could. He, he had a lot of people that were with him, no doubt. But he also doesn't run away. He keeps working within the land to establish his place. And that's what we do when we face opposition. We continue to share the gospel. 
We continue to work for what's right and true and good and just. And even if it's vilified, we have a conviction that we keep on pressing, we keep pressing on and trusting in God's promises. You know, over the last few years, um, you know, we saw the overturning of Roe versus Wade. You know, significant thing. And, and, and Christians, you know, for 50 years, almost 50 years, working at it, you know, pressing to see it happen through prayer, through different attempts here and there, maybe getting hopes up at one point and dashed at others. And, you know, along the way, just wondering if it's ever going to happen until finally, you know, last year we see what is, you know, Benave describes just a miracle. How, you know, almost never thought it would ever going to happen, but then it did. And that's how God works, right? Just, again, Isaac looking for a place eventually finds a place to find a well. And we, in Christian conviction, in sharing the gospel, in righteousness of God, you know, to see um, that through those hard moments, uh, there is a place that those things can work out, right? So we can't think that we'll coast through the Christian life. That's just not going to happen. Um, there are going to be obstacles. And yet, uh, convinced of God's promises, we press forward in his promises, in those promises. All right, so we're looking at what an ordinary Christian life looks like. First, we see God who holds our hearts um, close to him. Secondly, we see the persevering through opposition. The third thing we want to see starts in verse 26, and it's the opportunity to bear witness to God's grace. And in surprising ways and in surpassing ways. So what happens next is a surprise, at least it's a surprise to Isaac. Um, Abimelech has second thoughts, and he goes and he chases um, um, Isaac down, or he goes into Isaac's territory. And Isaac's like, hey, why would you come up here? Don't you hate me? You know, why do you come here with smiles on your faces and, and gifts with you? You know, what is it that you're trying to do? But obviously that Abimelech and seeing Isaac leave and all this wealth and, and all this blessing, you know, maybe had second thoughts. You know, what is it that we're giving up on? And, and is this going to come back and hit us later? And we didn't make sure that we have a covenant with this person. And so, you know, he, he goes and he, he reaches out to him. And verse 29, again, stands out to me because, again, through Isaac's blessing, Abimelech sees this is from God. Actually, verse 28 Bimelech says this, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you, have done to you nothing but good, have set you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And what do they see? They see the the, the hand of God that is at work within Isaac and the work um, with, with his family. And so they make this treaty with him. And it's just a wonderful conclusion of the story. It's the kind that we like. He doesn't back down. God rewards him. And he has a chance to witness to the Philistine people. Right? There is a reward that comes from God when we persevere. Right? There's a reward that comes from him. James 1.12 says this. James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Yeah, so do, you know, as you persevere, you have that hope of a, of a crown of life. But something else happens. That's, sometimes those who reject us and they reject the message may eventually see what's different in the Christian life and come and ask for the reason of the hope that's in us. That's what 1 Peter chapter 3 says. If you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 3 gives a picture of persecution, which turns into witness. 
First Peter 3, starting in verse 14, listen to the persecution part. For even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. But then what do we do? But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, but do it gentleness and respect. Right, so you see the picture here. There is this persecution that goes on. A person remains steadfast under trial. And then after they say, you know, I, you know, I treated him terrible. I spoke badly against him. And yet he doesn't give up on his hope. What is that hope that is within you? What is that hope that drives you through difficulty? What is that hope that drives you even though you're ridiculed or made fun of or you face difficulty or sickness, um, you know, even though your obedience to Christ has cost you something, what is it that keeps you going? What an opportunity in life do we have then to share? It's Jesus Christ. His life, his death for me is what gives me my hope. By the way, plug for the Share Your Faith workshop because sometimes we don't know how to share that, Right? And that gives an opportunity to learn how to express that. But it comes out of that obedience, that trust in Christ in the ordinary parts of life. When sickness hits, when trials start, when persecution comes, that's the compelling life that points people to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so now, just a bit of a summary here. In all that we work through today, we have to remember that Isaac is no small two-bit, insignificant player in God's plan. Because if you think about how God identifies himself, just think about this. When he identifies himself, who is he? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So he may not be flashy. He may only get one chapter. He may not have stories or heroic conquests. But without him, there is no ancient Israel, no people of God, no salvation. Without him, the covenant line is broken. And so we all remember that we're a bridge to something that comes after us, whether we're the silent generation or boomers or Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, Generation Alpha, whatever. You know, we're a bridge to something else. I'm reminded that every pastor is an interim pastor. Somebody has pastored you before, somebody will pastor you after. And my hope is to pass on a healthy church to some other pastor at some day. You know, but I, I'm here for a time, and to bridge that gap is, is important. Now, I hope it's a long time. I'm not going anywhere, but um, you know, I hope it's a long time, long, long time. But, you know, I recognize, you know, we're always thinking, you know, what is it that we're doing for the next generation as a parent? You know, I know that I am um, a bridge to pass on God's truths to children before they one day pass it on to others. And children, as you're here, one day you'll take these truths that you're taking now and you'll, you'll pass them on to another generation. You know, and it shows that even in that ordinary course of life and the humdrum of changing diapers and going to work every day and the commute that we have, that, that there's still meaning in the little things that we do. We don't know how God will use them, but we're confident that he will. And what matters is not that we are trying to make a big impact, whether we're part of the impact God himself is sovereignly making. We're part of what God is doing. And so ours is a call to faithfulness. It's not some two-tier system where some people have a higher spiritual class than others because they make a bigger spiritual impact. Remember, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three. That's the grace of God. It's not by works. And so why do anything, we might ask? Well, 
I mean, the church needs volunteers. We need people to step in and do our mission. Um, one of the reasons we join together as a church is to do this mission that God has for us, uh, for our region, for the world. But we do it as those who are already accepted in Christ. We're accepted on the basis of his work. When he died on the cross, he fully paid the penalty of our sins. He brought us into our family. And so our goals, our desires, our ambitions, they come as those um, who have already been adopted by Jesus Christ. And I hope you know that. I hope you, you know that today. I hope you know that if you're a visitor, if you've been trying to prove yourself to someone, to a parent, to a loved one, to God, and you're just worn out, you know, could you believe that there is acceptance, total acceptance in Jesus Christ? Or maybe you've been part of a church, but you've just forgotten that God's love is not based on your performance. It's based on Christ. Maybe you've forgotten his love. Rest in Christ. Rest in his love. You know, let your life work out that fullness of Christ he's already given to you. Let it work out the love that he's already poured into you. Let your life be an expression of what you've received from God. Know his love and walk in his love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you remind us of our love, remind us that we are saved by grace, that we are not saved by works. Uh, remind us, God, that, that even the works that you do reward us for are works that you've prepared for us ahead of time. So, Father, as we live, help us to live by grace. God, in that humdrum, in the ordinary, we just choose, God, to be, to be faithful to the things that you set in front of us. Our sole goal, precious Savior, is that you would be glorified, that you'd be honored. Help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together. Our closing hymn is more love to